Welcome to Lectionary Call-In for Tuesday, September 12th of 2023, where laypersons and pastors gather at 6.30 a.m. Eastern Time each Tuesday to discuss the Gospel Lectionary for the coming Sunday, and this Sunday is September 17th. We're working to be faithful to Lectionary Year A. Here's how it works. We prepare independently in advance of the discussion after receiving some formative questions from this week's leader, and then in this podcast, we share, question, and challenge each other. And today, for the second week, we have a special guest pastor, Laurie Rabel, Senior Pastor of Selwood Avenue Presbyterian Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Laurie earned a Master's in Divinity from Union Presbyterian Seminary of Charlotte and is currently pursuing her Doctorate of Ministry from Union Presbyterian Seminary with a focus on gender, authority, and congregational leadership. Welcome back, Laurie. And here are all the folks joining us in today's discussion. Bill Hall, St. Petersburg, Florida. Sarah Mickelson in Tampa, Florida. I'm Lori Rabel in Charlotte, North Carolina. Don Upton in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Good to see everybody, and hello to all of our listeners. And our lead today is Sarah Mickelson. She's prepared the questions for our discussion, which we commend to you as ideas for your own discussion groups, and that you'll read the scripture as well. Hello, my friend. How are you doing today, Sarah? I'm okay. I hope everybody else is okay. Welcome, and we're glad you're here. Um, We're reading from Matthew again. Um, We're still in the 18th chapter, and this one falls almost on the feet of last week's reading. Um, The reading starts in verse 21, Matthew 18, and I'm going to read 21 through 35, um, reading from the Revised Standard Version, not the updated version, sorry. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, if, in, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. And for this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold together with his wife and children and all his possessions and payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him, saying, Have patience with me. I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave his debt. But that same slave went out and came upon another of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him by the throat, he said, pay me what you owe. And then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused. And then he went and he threw him into prison until he could pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported it to their Lord, reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then the Lord summoned him and said, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he could pay his entire debt. So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. And that ends the reading of our scripture. What an interesting reading. 
Um, I have thought about these questions and, and composed them uh, because I phrased them in first person because I feel like that's the best place to start when you're really trying to reform. So please consider both the human tendency to keep the tally of slights and God's never-ending extravagant love and grace. Why is what I want and receive from God so different from what I extend to others? And graciously, Lori has agreed to answer this question first. Your turn, Lori. Thank you, Sarah. I don't know if I have too much of an answer, but I will share a few of my thoughts. Um, over the weekend, my husband and I flew to Texas for a wedding. Um, and it struck me as we were checking our bag um, that anybody who's ever had to do that or travel in a plane knows that we live in a world um, where we are measured by our baggage in one way or the other. Um, in my case, it was $30, one big bag, and every responsible, rule-abiding, experienced traveler knows that if your bag weighs 50 pounds and one ounce, it means you're either paying more or you're pulling out your flip-flops and your bathrobe and your underwear in front of an entire airport under great duress. Um, so this idea that we pay according to the heaviness of our baggage is built in to the way we live our lives, both in the airport and in life. We keep tabs and tallies, we measure, we judge, we score and compete. It's how the entire world is ordered um, in some conditional manner. Uh, if you pack it, you carry it. If you make your bed, you lie in it. If you mess up or break a trust or miss a mark or sin, then you pay. Um, and if I can make one more point with the metaphor, nobody uh, nobody wants the world to view the inner workings of our baggage. I know that I don't, um, which is why I suspect I and, and many others struggle um, so much with forgiveness. Um, so in our case, Peter, and I love that it's Peter who is asking uh, the question, isn't doing anything that we don't do all the time. He's presenting a framework, and in essence, he's trying to box Jesus and thus God's grace into the parameters and the conditions of humanity. Um, I can only imagine that Judas is standing right there beside him, like working the numbers, you know, seven times 70. Um, how many times is too many? Um, you know, Peter is the one who's really bold in his faith, but um, in his boldness, he's also the one that is constantly sizing Jesus up. You know, it's Peter who hops out of the boat um, before he sinks. It's Peter who witnesses the transfiguration, or at least he's one of them, um, and then suggests a tent for Moses and Elijah to keep them around a little bit longer. Peter's the first one to proclaim Jesus as Messiah in chapter 16. Um, and our text last week actually quotes that it exchanged between Peter and Jesus um, when Peter, uh, when Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And yet just two verses later in that exchange, Jesus predicts his own death and Peter wants nothing to do with it. He rebukes Jesus and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Um, I could go on, but but that's my point. Peter is being Peter. Um, as Jesus puts it, um, Peter continues to reduce the concerns of God to um, Peter's human um, situation as some sort of transaction. Um, so this time, as Peter is talking about the limits of forgiveness, how much is too much, 
Jesus just refuses to take the bait. Instead, as as is always with these kingdom parables, uh, Jesus uses allegory and narrative to connect a divine truth about God uh, with the reality of our human existence. Um, you know, many theologians, not the least of which Martin Luther King Jr., um, has said that forgiveness is far less a one-time act and far more uh, a way of being. Um, and so forgiveness, as I think about it, is is not only what God does in Christ, but forgiveness is who God is in Christ, and it also reflects God's character as it's revealed in Christ. Um, one more thing that I'll share is um, is just a reminder that Jesus that that Matthew's written for a Jewish audience with the intent of revealing Jesus as the promised Messiah, uh, fulfilling Jewish prophecy. And so I found it very interesting that. 7 times 70 is a reference to a passage in Genesis when Lamech uh, boasts to his lives that he will to his wives that he will avenge himself 70 times 70 fold against anyone who tries to attack him and so in essence Jesus is saying um um you know revenge is not an option uh if you are a follower follower of Christ um we owe we don't pay we are judged but we're not condemned Lovely. Bill, what are your thoughts? First of all, thank you, Lori, for that literal and figurative reference to baggage. (laughs) Very, very helpful, Uh, which I think speaks to Sarah's question. We all carry baggage, um, and we do um, run the risk that Peter did of trying to Uh, fit the gospel into our human limitations. First of all, Sarah, uh, I occasionally reference that there are other lectionary passages for the week, one of which is Psalm 103. And to honor that and to benefit from it, I want to read a few selected verses from Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and do not forget all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good as long as you live so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always accuse, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sin nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he removes our transgressions from us. That's the nature of God. (laughs) That's the God we meet in Jesus Christ. And while we don't have time to deal with it, One of my problems with this passage, Sarah, is the very ending where Jesus says, that's what God's going to do, which seems so cruel. But anyway, that's another conversation. The nature of God is to forgive and to remove. We have a North Pole and a South Pole. There is no East and West Pole. So that's how far God removes our sins from us. Um, 
obviously there's a great exaggeration, Sarah. You were alluding to it before we began the um, broad broadcast. The first debt is simply astronomical. It is way beyond uh, possibility. And the second that wouldn't be forgiven was significant, but by far minuscule. Um, now, the temptation in this parable is to say, I'm not servant number one. But let me quote from Susan Jones in the Christian Century, August 25, 1999. She writes, yet if we are honest, there are times when we find ourselves behaving like that unforgiving servant. We are pleased with the idea of a forgiving God, but not if it would require us to change our lives. Forgiveness becomes something we claim but fail to proclaim in our living. We too often sound like George Eliot's description in the novel Adam Bede, quote, we hand folks over to God's mercy and show none ourselves. Uh, it is possible to hear Jesus' 70 times 7 or 7 times 7, whatever, as in part an acknowledgement that there are instances where we may truly forgive, but later at least within ourselves, we relive the hurtful event and need yet again to engage in the journey of forgiveness. So I'll end with this comment. When Peter says, how many times should I forgive, it would be natural to say, well, if I forgive one sin and then another sin occurs, we could understand, yes, it's that, but it could be one act that's hurtful or destructive. And we, when we relive it, and I can identify with this, there are some events in my life that when something triggers a memory, I begin again the journey to forgive. Thank you for the question, Sarah. You're welcome. Don, you want to weigh in? You summarized it for me when you wrapped up the question a minute ago. You said you were in, you were going to deal with first person in this case. And I think this parable points to only one person we're supposed to compare ourselves to, which makes it very difficult. But you said uh, it's a very good place to start. So I heard Rogers and Hammerstein. Let's start at the very beginning. First person. But it would surprise me because I think we get to, let's start with the first person at the end of the passage. What, what I think the, what this character does at the first is he, it starts with uh, the master saying, let's start at the very beginning, all of it. The whole ecosystem, the community. I'm taking you as a normal, living, breathing human being who can see the landscape around them. Well, apparently that's not true. So the first beginning is let's start with what the master believed to be true, which is we all resonate with each other. We all, everything we do has a connection to other people. Wrong. At the end, he goes, no, all right, we're going to have to start all over. Let's get back to the very beginning. But remember, that ain't the point at all. So I really like the way you uh, set that up, Sarah. Uh, and as I was thinking through it, what, what I what I want, I'll play it, all right? I'll say I. What I want to receive may be two different characteristics of my understanding of God. 
and my relationship with God. So what I what I want, what I get, uh, there's a difference there too. Uh, that may that's probably for another discussion, Sarah. But I'll commend hundreds of folk songs and poetry and soul and rock, rock and R and B uh, to everybody's attention regarding the engagement of the Creator and what I want, <laughs> what I want and what I get. I mean, could, how many songs are coming to mind? How many poems are coming to mind about what you want versus or what you ask for and what you get? And I think there's some songs, some songs out there with where one cries out for action, justice and protection from the face of God. I'm crying to you, how long, how long? But God is already acting. And we're, and the, per, the psalmist doesn't even see the fact that God is playing in the lives around him. So what I want from God affirms the creator's existence. That's interesting. Uh, and engagement in lives of humans. It is an affirmation when I ask for something. But what I receive is never fully investigated by me never fully investigated for its impact, its value, its education, and purpose, and may be unseen, unfelt, or even rejected. Uh, much like last week, what if, what if my friend sends against me, uh, misses the mark with me, am I just turning around and saying, well, you may be the creator, but you missed the mark on this, my friend? My friend Jesus, you missed the mark. It's not quite what I had in mind. I, I think I have to face the potential that, what I receive from God is so different than what I extend to others because I do not take the time to investigate what I've been given. The answers to prayer, the work of the creator all around me. There's this first uh, uh, childish answer. What about what I do is so different than God? Uh, there's, there's lots of sermons on selfishness and personal idolatries and hard-heartedness when it comes to the question, Sarah, but I'll just offer a blunt subtext of many of these. There really isn't a person on earth more important than me or my comings and goings. Now comes the love of Jesus, not a threat, which says acts of recovery and restoration and forgiveness are not only possible, but resonate through our relationships and the unknown future. But I think the subtext is there, which is who does who at some point, and I put it myself, doesn't believe that they are actually the center of the universe and in a direct debate with God about who God's supposed to be. That's what I've got there. Oh, thank you. So th- this was a really rich, deep dive for me on this one. And um, I did read a lot of Working Preacher, um, starting with uh, Clayton Schmidt's writings in September um, of 20, excuse me, 2008, Jesus calls into question the entire game. If you keep count, it's not forgiveness, period. It's just that clear. Um, so to forgive without calculation or reservation, that's really hard for us as, as human beings, really hard for me. Um, and, and not that I've been known to keep track of slights in a tally, but it's crossed my mind that I might. Um, and I also recognize that I, I cross that pathway again and again and again each time I feel like I've been slighted. And so I, I think about how to not regurgitate past wrongdoings that have been forgiven and bring them up again when a new forgive when a, a new opportunity for, to forgive has arrived at my feet. 
So um, in the illustration that Jesus offers, he uses a unit of measure of weight to teach about forgiveness, and this is a common unit of measure that was used to calculate volumes of precious metals, silver and gold, at his time. So a talent was close to 130 pounds, if we're talking in U.S. units of measure. And it was equal to about 5,475 denarii, which are little day wages, coins that represented the work a person would provide in a single day. So a talent would equal 15 years' worth of wages. 10,000 talents would be 150 years' worth of income or 3,000 financial life sentences. That is so big that there's no way a person could possibly repay that without indentured servitude of his whole entire family and all the people that he would ever have in his family. So that's the level of forgiveness that's offered to the first slave. Now, it's interesting that in God's eyes, the life of a sinner is worth, and here's the number, 54,750,000 coins. That's the life of a sinner. Now, in the eyes of the sinner, the life of someone is worth 100 coins. The incongruencies are there. Somehow we value money more than we value each other. How did that happen? So I find this an interesting rub because it really, Jesus calls into question the entire game. And what do we value about each other? And I think that's what's lovely here. Um, When I ask the question in first person, I also kind of walk down this path. Do I love my independence more than my salvation? I seem to insist that my initial sin rights of self-determination, personal liberty, and individual choice by thinking about what I am owed rather than considering what I have been forgiven. And I'll rephrase, my initial sin rights of independence. I resent anyone suggesting that I yield what is due to me because someone else was willing to forgive you. How do I reconcile this love that was freely given without limit to my need to earn love, forgiveness, and grace? And that requirement I put upon other people to earn my love, forgiveness, and grace. Why do I need a Savior? How do I navigate between thinking that I have earned compensation for something and seeing everything as gifts that are offered from God? And I point you to Psalm 24, which opens, The earth is the Lord's and everything therein. Thank you, Bert Tuggle, who was a minister at summer camp when I was growing up. And we would recite that in a recall way every day. It was a great thing. So question number two, in thinking about binding and loosening or loosing from last week's reading and the ways that these ideas can be cast forward into vitalizing a community bond, like a church, with whom and to what systems do we bind ourselves each day? Don, I thought about you on this question, so you're getting it first. 
because I'm so bound to so many things, <laughs> so trapped. I, I, for me, it starts with uh, you know, meditating on what the word binding means. Uh, I, it, I think the American tendency is to think about shackles and being tied up and wrapped up and bound and uh, stuck might be the word. Uh, and I'd like to suggest that you know binding can be connected to very practical things. And uh, very, very practical things, things that have been done that way for a long, long time. They'll always work so well. Why would you change anything? Lives are saved. Justice is dispensed. Why would we do anything differently? It's practical. It's fair. It's superficial. And I think we're asked to, to step away from that. So that's my, my basic answer, but just to provide uh, a few examples, uh, we could have many systems. Uh, like the man in this parable with a relationship with others that can be leveraged. I think he has a mini system. I think, I think, I think a lot of people do. I think we all do that, that we touch things, connections, networks, things in our lives. Why, why are the networks built in the first place? I think the answer a lot of time is, well, to protect myself. What do you think it's for? Now you think about the word networking that we hear. And I, I don't want to cast a, a total negative on the, uh, on the term networking, but, you know, isn't really networking the way you hear it most days about protecting yourself to build relationships so that you have a safety net or an entryway or wealth. It's not all bad, but, you know, what is the real purpose of this? How superficial is it? Uh, bound relationships that are uh, purpose to provide safety nets from uh, and the flow of capital. Uh, and some of those relationships are never expected by others. Here's a parable where I, I think it probably came as a shock what, what came downhill towards them. Networking is a bright, helpful, engaging, lasting thing, uh, but it's also uh, can be a single pathway for a single personal purpose. It's all about me. It's all about what I can use to protect myself. And I'd also offer up church systems that prevent participation in community, prevent participation in the Lord's table, prevent participation in good, healthy conversation, fellowship and debate because we've always done it that way and everything's settled. Uh, and I'd offer the unli- uh, underlying implicit systems built to exclude and limit participation. It seemed to work quite nicely because the city's in good shape and housing is in the right place, but participation in housing for all people, participation in health systems, learning, aspirations, economic opportunity, I think it's all around us, and this is as is, is harsh as this passage is read. It's, uh, it seems to be a call for meditation, and from uh, since you asked me to make it personal, Sarah, start at the very beginning because I haven't gotten it right all along. It's not supposed to start with me, but we're going to have to get it right. We have to get it down to the core. So let's get back to meditating on all these things around us with a little promise, I think, in here, which is it works. This This doesn't... This isn't actually about failure. This is a building block parable that says, by the way, if you do these things, it works. And it brings you joy as well. That's what I've got, Sarah. Thanks, Don. Bill, what about you? Uh, what To what do we bind ourselves? Based on the parable, the focus seems to be on something outside myself, something somebody else did. They did not pay a debt or they, whatever it was that, that harmed me. 
but following your first person singular format, Sarah, um, my attention this week with this question was to focus on myself. I believe we can bind ourselves within ourselves. For example, when I finished seminary in the mid-1960s, I had, and this is not an exaggeration, an expectation that in the midst of all that was swirling in the outside world, that churches and the people I would serve were going to adhere to my commitment to hear each other out, to respect each opinion, to deal graciously with differences. And there were other assumptions I made about how followers of Jesus Christ would relate to each other within their worship fellowship. How long do you think it took for those expectations and assumptions to be fractured and even at times shattered? We who've been to seminary often talk about how in some ways we are better prepared academically than practically. I had no preparation for the disillusionment, the disappointments, and the anger that would ensue. Now, it wasn't all that. I'm not saying that, but all of us understand what I'm saying. My, I was bound, Sarah, to my expectation. Now, in dealing with that, I got some counseling. I did a lot of reading, and one result of that was to teach me the wisdom. Now, the proverb that, as it was first given to me, was, if you're frustrated, lower your expectations. I didn't like the word lower. I expect us on this team to be gracious to each other. I'm not going to lower that expectation. But what I learned was that I could modify my expectations to align them more with reality and understand and accept that others did not necessarily operate in accord with my presumptions. Now, there are other expectations within myself that even in retirement I still, still deal with. So your question was to what do we bind ourselves? I have the external challenges, but my primary one is internal, Sarah. I'm going to volunteer that when I thought about this question, I thought about those things that I use to measure effectiveness and how I use to measure things around me. And the first thing I thought about is a clock. I clock in when I get to work and I clock out when I leave so that I can have compensation for the time I've spent offering services to my employer. Now, I see this work as a joy rather than work. Not everybody feels that way, right? We've heard that phrase, I'm going to the rock pile, or um, I hate what I do for a living, but I'm doing it because I need to make a living. So I think it's a challenge to think about how we represent this particular kind of care and feeding and love to those around us where we work. So I'm I'm bound into this relationship with my employer. I'm bound into this relationship with my my coworkers. 
how do I move them from, and I'm not sure I can, so let me qualify that, but how do I, how do I make the experience something more positive than I'm punching a clock? So how do I lean into what God, lean into the God of recurring do-overs when I measure others by unforgiving standards of efficiency and expedience? There are moments when I go, okay, I recognize that we're doing the same thing over and over again, and it was stupid the first time. And I say, well, what if we change what we do? And there's a lot of attraction to doing how we do it and not interrupting how we do it because it provides comfort, safety, and parameters for a lot of people. So when I introduce this idea of change, I hear a lot of booing and hissing, and then I go, well, what if it meant we could go this direction faster, better, sooner? And then somebody goes, tell me more about that. So now I've offered the equational balance that says I can give you more efficiency if you'll change your behavior. So I wonder what role mercy plays in the day-to-day world of employment. And how do we give that to each other? Because they see us as the church. We represent the God we believe in. When we're at the desk, when we're at the grocery store, when we're driving in our cars, because that's really sketchy. So I want to say <laughs> nothing's worse than pulling up into the public's parking lot, which is a grocery store in, in Florida, pulling up in the parking lot and pulling in behind somebody and having fostered some sort of anger about their driving skills, and then suddenly, oh, hi, it's so nice to see you. And you, I saw you in church today, did you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so suddenly we're confronted with our judgment and how we've leveled it at someone else mercilessly when we've been given such mercy. So I'm wondering how do we transform that quick to anger into a place of quick to love? And, and so I, I, I think about those systems that have strapped me in and refuse to let me function as God would have me function or give me the flexibility of stepping into that realm of being the face and the hands and the feet of God. What do you got, Lori? I'm enjoying your what you have to say, Sarah, and, and thinking um, that maybe you've shifted into uh, what it means to live um, with daily gracing, you know, as opposed to, like, forgiveness connotes, uh, connotes wrongdoing. Um, and, and you're describing a life of, of gracing, you know, the verb, great, gracing verb, which, which I'm attracted to thinking about that. So thank you. Um, in both cases, uh, you know, uh, gracing and forgiving requires, um, and I think they matter because relationships matter, you know. So if God created us for together togetherness. Um, if not, I suspect that most of us wouldn't struggle so much to forgive or to seek forgiveness. Um, your question, you know, with whom and to what systems do we bond ourselves each day? Um, in general, e- even in our fractured state as a country right now, and I cannot, um, I, I cannot, I suspect it's going to remain fractured for the next um, year, at least year and a half, as we look towards another election. 
um, even though we're fractured and sometimes fragile, we're, we're live under the pretense of freedom and liberty. Uh, and, and Sarah, you, you did a good job reminding us that, that maybe we translate that as individual independence. Um, but that reality or that assumption of, of freedom or even independence is truer for some than for others based on the biases and assumptions of our structures and systems, of course, including within the truth, um, the church, which, which Don reminded us. Um, I, I, I was reminded of, of a story that Howard Thurman tells in his book, uh, Jesus and the Disinherited, uh, many years ago. And I'm going to paraphrase a conversation he had in 1935. So that's, you know, almost 90 years ago with the Hindu leader, uh, in, in what is now with Sri Lanka. Uh, the man made his point to Howard Thurman, uh, and he said, Sir John Newton, the author of your famous hymn, Amazing Grace, made his fortune on the sale of slaves, and the name of his slave vessel was Jesus. Uh, the men who bought slaves were white Christians, uh, Christian ministers quoting the Apostle Paul and justification. Enslaved people were freed by a man who actually was not a professing Christian, and since then, you have lived in a Christian nation in which you are segregated, lynched, and burned. Thurman argued um, in that same book that Jesus' words were directed to the people of Israel, who happened to be a minority within the Roman Empire, smarting under the loss of status, freedom, and autonomy, and they were haunted by dreams of restoration of lost glory and former greatness. Uh, those are his words, not mine. Um, Jesus' ministry on earth was urgent, and he was concerned with matters of the heart, um, and as Thurman puts it, uh, to revile because one has been reviled, this is the real evil, because it is the evil of the soul itself. Uh, we, in our systems and our patterns of togetherness, are susceptible to binding ourselves to all the wrong things all the time. Um, I, I am susceptible to binding myself to systems which prop me up, um, comfort me, uh, make me feel important, uh, grant me wealth, all the things. Um, ensure my kids get into a good college. I could go on and on and on. Um, and Christ will have none of it. Um, you know, the other thing is I, I was wondering what the difference between forgiveness and salvation really is, because they both lead to freedom and liberty. Um, and at the end of the day, the, the only way to get there um, for us is, is through the cross. Uh, which is why I suspect we avoid it at all costs. Oh, out of the ballpark. Thank you. My last question, and I'll be quick since we're running close to time. Yeah, we've got about uh, we've got about five minutes, there. Okay. In in binding, uh, excuse me. Um, in the binding is binding, the holding on to or sustaining of a grievance or debt, and. The next question that's tied to that is loosening the act of forgiveness. This can be a yes or no question. It doesn't have to be a lot. So I say, can we bind ourselves to forgiveness? And can we hold fast to loosening joy? That's how I answered it. What do you got, Bill? Uh, respecting time, I will make only my first point. Uh, as an amateur study of the Greek New Testament, according to my study, there are 57 instances in the New Testament of 
Greek words that we translate as forgive, there are at least three of them. The most frequent is the one that means to release, to loose. It literally means to open a clenched fist, to physically release something. That is by far the most frequent. It's in the Lord's Prayer. It's in today's passage. Um, The other one focuses on forgiveness as being gracious. And interestingly, it most often occurs in the writings of Paul. It means to forgive, but it, it within it, it's a combination of words. One word is to be gracious. And the third one means to set free, for example, setting a prisoner free, uh, letting someone go. So the whatever verb it is, it involves letting go. Tom, what about you? I'll give a yes and no, sorry. Uh, I think it's a part of a recipe. Since we can't start where we're intended to be in terms of seeing what's around us and understanding where we are in community and the timeless community, I think it's a part of a Matthew recipe, which includes... um, confrontation, which we, we talked about last week, I mean, constru- even constructive confrontation or forced confrontation where you must meditate. In this case, this is the ultimate. <laughs> you must meditate at the end of this one. But something happens. Something happens. And there's a discipline to that. And what happens along with that is the need to understand what it means to be in fellowship with other people as we move forward. Other people happen. And then there's something in there after that recipe, which is forgiveness. And, and it's it's focused on the creator, what the creator's doing, focused on the willingness to be ex- uh, forgiven. And I think the forgiveness coming towards the one that's offended, coming towards me. My greatest moments of joy when I've walked through that door is when I've been coached, even by – I can remember as a, as a boy or an adolescent where I, I said outrageous things. I said hurtful things. And there were people who probably were in the, the line of sight on that who – who actually stayed with me and smiled. I can remember smart people, people I admired, giving me, at the time I would have said they gave me a pass. What they gave me was forgiveness. So I think it's part of a recipe where that takes place, but the hard part in the middle could be very, very small or very, very big is there's a personal apocalypse in this. The Confronting what we do, what I do, the power, and, and going through that confrontation, coming at me, I me mean, going at others, and those with love who surround me and provide the forgiveness, wow. And I think part of my job, having gone through that many times, is to say there's real joy on the other side. You know, it's hard to describe what being released from the bonds actually feels like until you've been through that many apocalypse. That's what I've got there. Lori, you get last word. I'll try to keep it short. Um, Our binding and our loosing is fully dependent on God's binding and God's loosing. And our forgiveness and our grace is fully dependent on God's forgiveness and and God's grace. And um, I'll I'll leave you with one image that uh, Miroslav Volf writes about in his book, Free of Charge, um, that with forgiveness – with with Christians, uh, it's it's a it's a three it's a three part deal uh, with, with God, the the wrongdoer and the wronged, uh, all all at work together in a triangle of sorts. 
Uh, and so there's a conduit, there are conduits between the three of us as we work out um, how to bind ourselves to one another yet again and how to let go of that which separates us. Thank you. I'm thinking about Ted Lasso. I'm thinking about the end of season one when um, the ownership of the coach, the, the ownership of the football team um, comes to him and confesses that she hired him specifically to ruin the team. And he goes, hmm, okay, I'll forgive you that. And they move on. And they end up taking the team in a new place, which is such a lovely thing. It's a visual on that forgiveness. Um, back to you, Don. Thank you. And we're out of time. Uh, I wish we could go on and on. This has been a, a real joy. And uh, Laurie Rabel, you're always welcome. Let me tell you, uh, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. You made us better. I know I speak for the whole team. So come back soon. Palmasier Presbyterian Church is at 3501 West San Jose. That's in Tampa, Florida. That's the church that makes this podcast possible. For more information, you can go to palmasia.org. That's P-A-L-M-A-C-E-I-A.org. Uh, for that site, we always come to you. Discussions of lectionary, disagreements about lectionary, great conversation, forgiveness, uh, opportunities to reflect, uh, take communion, great sermons, great music. So check that out. And I, I have to also say, as Laurie leaves us for this last two weeks, uh, it's a great sermon going on at Selwyn uh, as well, so check check that out as well. And for everybody, you're always welcome, and we'll see you next time.